Welcome to Repro's Fight Back, a podcast on all things repro. I'm your host, Jenny Wetter, and each episode I will be taking you to the front lines of the escalating fight over our sexual and reproductive health and rights at home and abroad. Each episode, I will be speaking with leaders who are fighting to protect our reproductive health and rights to ensure that no one's reproductive health depends on where they live. It's time for Repros to fight back. Welcome to this week's episode of Repros Fight Back. I'm really excited about this week's topic for a couple of reasons. First, it was one of the topics suggested by listeners when we had our recent giveaway. So that makes it super exciting to do. Um, We got so many great suggestions that I can't wait to do another giveaway and see what all you guys suggest. Um, But also feel free to reach out anytime if you ever have a topic that you would like us to cover. Um, Second, this is a topic that is really at the center but never, ever talked about. Um, So that's right. Today we're going to talk about pleasure. So helping me talk about all things pleasure, I'm super excited to have the amazing Bergen Cooper from the Center for Health and Gender Equity with me today. Hey, Bergen. Hey. Thanks so much for doing this and having me at your place. Oh, I'm so happy we're talking about pleasure and I'm so happy we're talking about pleasure in my apartment in Brooklyn because, you know, this is just a joy. Exactly. (laughs) It's like the perfect place. It is. (laughs) It's nice and cozy. So, you know. Yeah, we have our candles going. We're really setting the mood. (laughs) Uh, So why should we be talking about pleasure? Ah, pleasure is a critical part of sexual health. We know we're we should be talking about sexual health. We're used to talking about sexual health, but I think we're used to talking about the negative outcomes, the the STIs, the unwanted pregnancy, the gender-based violence, and, and that's important, and that contributes to the global burden of disease, and, and, and that matters. And we spend a lot of time talking about policies and programs and education to prevent those unwanted aspects of sexual health. We do not spend enough time talking about the positive aspects of sexual health, well-being, autonomy, and pleasure. Pleasure matters. We know that bad sex has negative impacts on your life. Good sex has positive impacts on your life. And we do ourselves a disservice when we only focus on the negative. Also, uh, September 4th is World Sexual Health Day. It's also Beyonce's birthday. I think this is really important, critical for your uh, listeners to know about. I mean, there's something going on there. And honestly, it should just be Bergen Day because when I think of Beyonce and pleasure, I think of Bergen. That's really just the greatest compliment I've ever gotten. (laughs) Yeah, but it's, it's so important that we're talking about pleasure because pleasure does have good outcomes in a person's life. But it's a topic that people feel nervous to talk about um people aren't prepared to talk about it with their doctors they aren't prepared to talk about it in sex education in schools they aren't prepared to talk about it with their partners and really sometimes it's hard to talk about with their friends or even admit to themselves what they find pleasurable so i'm really glad we're having this conversation today all cards on the table i went to catholic school k through eight and had definitely had sex ed from a nun so like Talking about pleasure is like that last, like, oh my God, I can't believe we're having this conversation. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. Um, I, I went to a private school in Washington, DC and it was very progressive and we had, um, you know, we had biology where we learned sort of the mechanics of sex and then we had some human development courses and there were, you know, school assemblies, but there wasn't really at that time 
a structured sex education course that that took on the full components of sexual health. And um, and I, I think that's changed at that school, and I think it's changed in many schools uh, around the country, but there's still a lot of work to be done. I see that people are more comfortable having conversations around consent, and that's really important. Bringing the conversation of consent into sex education is critical. And yet only seven states require it. It's, it's ridiculous. <laughs> I mean, that's kind of mind-boggling to think about. Yeah, how many states do you think require uh, sex education includes topics of pleasure? <laughs> I'm going to say none. Yeah, I'm going to say it's probably not a requirement. And we're really doing ourselves a disservice. We're doing a disservice to young people around the world when we don't talk about pleasure. Because people in general do not have sex for reproductive purposes. Wait, what? I know. Let me say it again. People don't have sex. The vast majority of people do not have sex for reproductive purposes. They have sex for a variety of reasons, one of which includes pleasure. Now, when we're teaching young people about sex and we're not talking about pleasure, how in the world are we expecting them to be able to have pleasurable sex lives, fulfilling sex lives, and safe sex lives as they get older if they're not equipped to have those conversations when they're younger? Listen, I uh, I used to teach sex education. Uh, I taught sex education here in New York City, um, and I worked with a mobile a mobile health clinic. So we went around to all the boroughs, to all different types of schools, to different age ranges from from early adolescence to late adolescence. And one day, I was teaching this workshop on healthy relationships, and one girl brought up a question, and she said she wasn't enjoying sex. And I said, you know, where's the question? <laughs> she said, I just don't know why. I don't know what I, I don't know what I don't know. And so I said, you know, and we had been talking with this class for a while, and I knew that many of the uh, young women were sexually active. And, and I took a poll, and I said, why do you have sex? And people said, well, well, my partner and I had been together for a while. We love each other. It felt like the next step. Nobody said because it feels good. Nobody said because it makes me happy. Nobody said because it's fun. And sex feels good, should make you happy, and is fun. And if we don't talk about that, we're doing ourselves a horrible disservice. And there's so many important conversations that it's not part of. So... I figured we'd go for the most dramatic first and oh, then yeah. go, you know, shock everybody, whatever. <laughs> sure. Um, and so that's so often when you talk, we talk about FGC, and I'll let you go ahead and do the little bit of definition of what we're talking about when we say that. Pleasure isn't really part of that conversation. We just talk about the medical impacts and the health impacts and don't talk about how that impacts pleasure later or anything Female genital cutting, some people call it female genital mutilation, is a process in which uh, a woman's genitals are cut 
Um, and there are a couple different types of female genital cutting. And if you want to learn more, so we won't make Bergen yes. do like a deep dive. <laughs> Um, we did do an episode on it earlier, um, and I unfortunately can't remember the exact number, but if you look, it's titled female genital, um, mutilate or ending female genital mutilation slash cutting, I think. And it's with a great researcher from the population council. Oh, wonderful. All right. I'm going to go back and listen to that one. <laughs> um, so one, one of the things that we talk about with female genital cutting is ending it. And it's so critical to be having these conversations, to be thinking about how we can do that. But there are over 200 million women and girls living around the world right now who have been cut. They're living with the ramifications of female genital cutting. What are we doing for them? Now, people often talk about how it can be hard to give birth after being cut, and and that's a critical conversation. But what about women's pleasure? If we are talking about the clitoris being cut or removed um, for the external clitoris, then we need to be talking about pleasure. Now, women and girls who have been cut often, uh, our data show that they experience uh, less arousal, orgasm, and desire. There are 200 million women and girls around the world who are experiencing this. While it is critical to end this practice, it is so important that we think about their needs, that providers, when they talk to women who have been cut, are able to talk about sexual health, are able to offer them services, are able to talk to them about alternatives for seeking pleasure. This, these are really necessary conversations that, due to so much stigma and shame and, and lack of education, don't happen. It's so rare that you hear that. Any talk about pleasure around FGC. People are comfortable talking about FGC and they'll say the word clitoris when you're talking about removing it, but why aren't people comfortable talking about the word clitoris when it, when it is fully there and women are experiencing pleasure and, and need to be experiencing pleasure? And, and FGC involves the removal of the external clitoris, but as we know, the clitoris is still internal as well, and women still have capacity to experience pleasure. And this pleasure uh, is something that women and girls, if they want to have that ability, should have access to. And I think it just kind of goes back to that whole, we just don't talk about pleasure. Mm-hmm. I mean, if we're, if that's not part of the conversation to, part of FGC, I think that's just, we're at a time where it would seem so obvious to have that conversation. It just shows how often we just don't talk about F, uh, pleasure at all in, in the sexual and reproductive health area. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that it's important to realize that you can be talking about pleasure and almost any aspect of SRHR, there is room for the conversation and there is a need for the conversation as well. So another area that we definitely don't talk about enough in general and definitely don't talk about pleasure is I know one of your key areas and that's um, pleasure and women post-reproductive age. Yes. Oh, one of my most favorite topics to talk about. Um, You know, this all started when... uh, Change, we did a event and we were talking about sexual rights. And uh, now my dear friend, Kaylin Crockett, came up to me and she said, you know, this is really interesting, this data on sexual rights. Can you share with me the data that you have on women past reproductive age? And I looked at her and I realized the data didn't exist. And I was embarrassed 
and I asked her to get coffee so we could talk about that immediately. This is about three years later, and Kaylin and I have written probably four or five papers <laughs> about older women and sexual health, um, and it's it's been a really exciting area to explore. So if you think about our global health data, the DHS, the Demographic Health Survey, is is the area where we really get our data from. Now that doesn't follow women past reproductive age because it was a maternal health survey. And so it's hard for us to even collect this data on, on women past reproductive age. There are incredible researchers around the world right now who are collecting more and new and interesting data on older women, but the data is, is far and few between. And often when we think about women's sexual health, what we're really actually talking about is reproductive health. Women's health is so often linked to their reproductive capacity. So when women don't have reproductive capacity, and they might that might be for a variety of, of, of reasons, but in this case, for the reason of age, if they don't have reproductive capacity, they're forgotten about. Them as sexual beings is not a conversation that is had. And women have sex. Women have sex past reproductive age, far, far past reproductive age. Women are having sex in their 50s and their 60s and their 70s and their 80s. I want to say 90s, but I'm not positive on that data. And as a researcher, I'm not going to say it, but <laughs> 80s for sure, I know, off the top of my head. And and this is a huge population because the world is aging. And of the aging population, the majority of those people are women. So there is this huge population whose sexual health is completely being ignored. Now, and we talked about some of the negative consequences of sex. This has a real harm on the negative consequences as Absolutely. well. Because if you don't think of women as sexual objects, as as people who engage in sexuality, who, who engage in a sex life, then as a provider or as a friend or as a family member, you might not be asking them the right questions. For example, women experience gender-based violence past reproductive age. Women need STI testing past reproductive age. If providers aren't comfortable having those conversations with them, then women aren't getting the services they need. And we've definitely seen that with like articles about, you know, outbreaks of STIs in nursing homes and stuff. So, you know, it's clear that those sexual health conversations are not being had and, you know, they probably if they had sex education, um, didn't have effective, or it's been so long and they haven't had to worry about it. So they're missing absolutely the, the um, sexual health side um, to even get to pleasure. I mean, you and I were just talking about the sort of sex yeah. education we did or didn't have in our high school years. And, and it's it's come so far in the past 20, yeah. 30 years. And I mean, think about yeah. our, our friends and the sort of education they got 60 years ago. I mean, this is go this is it's 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 horribly unfortunate that we ignore pleasure in older age. And, you know, another reason that it's unfortunate is that we're missing learning some important lessons as we age. Our bodies change and. Things that were pleasurable before might not be pleasurable now, and we might find new things pleasurable. When I was in graduate school, I wish I could remember the name of the study, but I read this qualitative study, and it was couples in New Zealand. And uh, Viagra was introduced to the couples. Uh, the couples were, were uh, heterosexual couples. And they used Viagra, and then some of them chose to stop using Viagra. And so the researchers went and spoke to the couples who chose to 
to stop using Viagra to understand what it was that had changed. And we heard from these couples that they had found different ways to experience pleasure when penetrative sex wasn't an option. They had found different ways to experience intimacy and orgasm. And when penetrative sex was brought back into the conversation, they realized that some of the things that they had discovered before Viagra were what was really exciting and what was giving them pleasure and orgasm. And so they wanted to go back to that. I think there is a lot of, of really exciting room for us to, to think about different types of pleasure as we think about women past reproductive age. Well, and you see that with, you've started to see lots more uh, writing, at least feminist writing, about the orgasm gap. Yes. And that is all part of this conversation. Absolutely. So the orgasm gap is is real. And I actually think this is a critical conversation to come back to sex education. As we talk about pleasure, it is important that people with a clitoris understand the type of pleasure that they can experience with a clitoris and and this should be a normal conversation this should be a safe conversation um, and people should be able to advocate for their own pleasure if you go through sex education and if you go through your doctor's offices and if you go through your life where you can't talk about pleasure, where you can't talk about orgasms, where you can't talk about what makes you feel good, how in the world are you going to be able to advocate for that in your own personal relationship? We need to normalize these conversations so that people can experience the benefit of, of happy sex lives. Okay, sorry, I pushed us off of um, post-reproductive age women. No, no, that's okay. No, I, I just, I think it's important that we think about sexual activity um, and distinguish it from reproductive capacity. And, and when we talk about women past reproductive age, that's, that's one way to do it. But there's so many groups that don't have reproductive capacity and, and so many groups that do and still have sexuality and sexual health and a desire for orgasm. One of my favorite things to say is that, um, as we talked about earlier, people have sex for fun. People have sex for pleasure. And we have the data to back that up. This is a rigorous public health issue, and it deserves to be spoken about. Um, you know, it just it really does get left behind in lots of conversations. And we touched on this a little bit, but like just providers having that conversation with patients. Yes, absolutely. So this is such a critical area. So most patients want to talk to their provider about sexual health, but the provider does not bring up the conversation And most providers are not trained to talk to their patients about sexual health. So we have this disconnect where patients want to talk to their doctors. Doctors don't know how to talk to their patients about sexual health. And and that's a real problem. A number of years ago, I was consulting with the World Health Organization, and we created guidelines called Brief Sexuality-Related Communication Guidelines. And these are guidelines after we looked at all the data around um, providers talking to their patients about sexual health in those brief moments that they have. What happens? How does it matter? Why does it matter? And, and we found that providers who spoke to their patients about sexual health in those brief moments it really could make an impact on STIs, on HIV, on unwanted pregnancy. And we wanted to be able to talk about the impact on sexual well-being, on autonomy, on pleasure. 
the data just wasn't there at the time. It wasn't rigorous enough for those guidelines. But what we were able to say is that providers should be talking to their patients about sexual health and they need the training. The training can happen in medical school, but also post-medical school, this training can occur. And it is critical. Providers need to be able to take a client-centered approach and talk to their patient and listen. I mean, listening is so critical. And I think especially around areas uh, of sexual health and of pleasure, giving that space where the provider can hear what the patient needs as opposed to diagnosing them right away is so important. Not every provider is going to be able to fix every sexual health issue. This is why we have sexologists. This is why we have psychologists. This is why we have so many different specialties within the medical community. But the primary care provider, they are going to be your first point of contact if you have something that you think is more serious. And then they'll send you to a specialist. Sexual health should be no different than any sort of infection or cold or mental health problem or anything you're talking to your primary care provider about. There's no reason for sexual health, for pleasure, for well-being to be cast to the sidelines. I feel like there's a lot that we could probably do a full episode on, like, uh, relationships with providers and patients. Um, oh, yeah. Make and that this, another like, episode. <laughs> you know, the importance of having, like, a full conversation about what kind of birth control works for you versus just being like, oh, I want something. And they're like, oh, here's a pill. Here are pills. Instead of having the fuller conversation and pleasure can be part of that conversation. And I think, you know, that's something that, you know, we don't have time for like a super deep dive on today, but it's definitely the importance of that doctor patient relationship and pleasure should be part of that. Yeah. And I know we don't have enough time, but let me just scratch the surface with that one. Um, I have often heard from friends that they worry about types of birth control uh, impacting their sex drive. And when you take birth control that has hormones, you wonder, how are the hormones going to, to impact my sex drive? There is a need for a systematic review to capture the amount of data that has been collected already, but people wonder about it. And when I was a sexual health educator, I worked with people before they went and saw the provider um, to pick their type of birth control. And over and over and over again, what I heard was, is this going to make me gain weight? And is this going to impact my sex drive? And it's... And this is a question that we get all the time, and it deserves study. But these studies need funding. Um, So it's it's really normalizing conversations around sexual health and pleasure is important, not just for the one-on-one conversation, but for funders, for researchers, for, for getting this level of study actually conducted. So you talked about your role as a sexual edu- sex educator. Mm-hmm. Um, that doesn't sound right. <laughs> <laughs> That's not what I meant. Uh, teaching sex ed. Yes. That's much better. <laughs> yep, yep, yep. Um, and the importance of having talking about pleasure in that conversation, because again going to Catholic school and having sex ed that was valuing your sexuality was definitely pleasure was not a topic that we talked about. Um, and it's still, I don't think very often talked about in sex ed. Yeah, no, I don't think it is talked about in sex ed. Um, so the conversation around sexual pleasure in sex education is critical because we don't want young people or any people 
to think that they have to experience sex in a certain way. What is pleasurable for one person is not pleasurable for another person. Uh, what one person gets excited about might not excite another person. And if you get this idea that there is one way to experience pleasure and sexual health, that might lead to self-doubt. It might lead to uh, uh, insecurities. And it's critical that we talk about pleasure in a way that allows people to see the diversity in sexual health and the diversity in pleasure. And also, the when we're talking about pleasure and we're talking about dynamics between uh, among genders, there it's certainly more normal in our culture to hear about boys' pleasure and far less common to hear about girls' pleasure. We need to normalize women's sexual pleasure. It's critical that we talk about pleasure for people who have clitorises because the clitoris can experience so much pleasure. And really, the world is a cruel place if people don't know that. I actually, I was a little disappointed to see you weren't wearing your clitoris ring. I don't know where it is. The jewelry box is a mess. But for everyone out there, I do have a clitoris ring, which I should uh, note is a ring that I wear on my finger. Yeah, no. Um, One time I was... I was giving a talk to current students at Columbia School of Public Health, and I was on the phone, and they asked about um, starting a new job, and they said, you know, how do you dress? How do you present yourself? And and I said, well, you know, when I started at my job, I certainly dressed more conservatively, but after I found my footing, I started shaving my head and wearing my clitoris ring. Well, somebody in the audience a year later told me that they thought I meant a ring through my clitoris. So that's great for everyone, but that is not what I was talking about. (laughs) Yes. Probably shouldn't share that story. That's okay. It's kind of amazing. (laughs) Uh, I had something not exactly similar, but I was at work and I – because – Bergen's amazing ring inspired me to go buy one for myself. Yes. Uh, and I was wearing it. And, like, you forget and, like, don't think about it. And I was sitting at a desk chair and, like, moved. And someone's like, oh, you are you have your clitoris ring on. And I was like, wait, what? I'm, oh, right. Yes. Yes. <laughs> the ring on my finger it is mm-hmm. the clitoris. Yep. No? Yep. I have, a, I have a silver necklace that I wear around my neck almost every day. And it's beautiful. It's a little pendant. Um, it's also a vibrator. Oh, nice. Yeah, and it's just wonderful to wear that into meetings and know that you always have a little pleasure right over your heart. Oh, I like that. (laughs) So, you know, one of the things that we've touched on pleasure before is that it's often included as part of the definition of sexual rights. Yes. So pleasure as a human right. Yes, absolutely. So... Pursuing a satisfying, safe, and pleasurable sex life. This is a part of the definition of of sexual well-being. This is a part of the definition of of certain definitions of sexual rights. If you want to see a fantastic definition of sexual rights, I highly recommend uh, the World Association for Sexual Health. They have a declaration of sexual rights. It includes, if I'm not mistaken 17 specific bullet points under sexual rights oh nice we'll make sure to include that in the yes. show notes oh good good it's wonderful um and and that includes um pursuing a safe satisfying pleasurable sexual life um sexual rights is a 
is a is a definition that has many definitions right. <laughs> depending on who you are speaking to but but often we talk about the pursuit of pleasure as important under sexual rights because as we said people experience pleasure differently and some people's experience of pleasure is asexuality and, and not engaging in sex and that pleasure is just as valid as someone whose pleasure is derived from physical stimulation and sex. So it's it's really critical that the pursuit is what is protected under our human rights standards. It was really great to see that become part of the the definition um, and to see that it's now gaining acceptance as part of a human right. Yeah, absolutely. And cheers to you and everyone else who's been working on all those sexual <laughs> rights definitions for so many years. Um, so we usually end the podcast with a, what action can people take to fight back? And that seems a little weird in this context. Oh, no, I have one. So how do we ensure it doesn't get left out of the public conversation? Seems maybe a little more, makes a little more sense. Absolutely. Normalize talking about pleasure. Whoever you are, if you are talking to your friend normalize talking about sexual pleasure. If you are a researcher, normalize the study of, of pleasure. If you are a funder, normalize funding pleasure as a health and human rights issue. And if you are a sex educator, please, please get comfortable talking about pleasure. We need to normalize these conversations. Pleasure should not be cast aside as a secret taboo subject. It is valid. It improves our health. It is a health and human rights issue that deserves to be taken seriously. And we each have a role in doing that every single day. Yeah. No, I think you really nailed that. <laughs> <laughs> Yay, pleasure. Uh, well, Bergen, thanks so much for doing this. Uh, thanks I for having me. Thanks for coming to Brooklyn to talk about pleasure. For more information, including show notes from this episode and previous episodes, please visit our website at reprosfightback.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter at Repros Fight Back. If you like our show, please help others find it by sharing it with your friends and subscribing, rating, and reviewing us on iTunes. Thanks for listening.